Hi everyone, I'm Pamelia Chia and you are listening to the Singapore Noodles Podcast, your go-to destination to learn about Singaporean food culture. Today I have on the show Yo Min, who is the founder of Pastories, which is a home-based business that specializes in traditional mooncakes. In the following conversation, we discuss the technicalities of Chinese laminated pastry and also the youth's perception of traditional mooncakes in Singapore. I feel that a lot of young people our age, um, they would prefer to bake things like cannelés or like croissants. So why exactly are you so interested in Chinese pastry making? Yeah, actually, the course I'm doing right now is also like, there's a lot of focus on French pastries. Um, but I've been making like, I've been making mooncakes since a few years ago. So I think it was one of the first Chinese pastries that I started with. And then, um, yeah, I was like, okay, I'm going to make sure I make it every year. So then the season came. And then it was, I think, about the period where I was having Zoom classes. So I had a lot of free time, right, to um, kind of do some research. And it so happened that the last class, the last practical class before we had this month-long Zoom class was on French puff pastries. So then when I did the French puff pastries, I was like, how come I haven't, you know, really done much of Chinese puff pastries? And when I looked into mooncakes, I was like, oh, maybe, yeah, the technique, the, the theory is pretty much the same, but the technique is very different. And I went to read more and more about it. It's, in Chinese, it's called su pi. La. So that's like the, that's what they call a layered pastry. Okay, so there's su ping, which is, which could either mean a short crust pastry or a puff pastry. And then there's su pi. So su pi is like particularly, like specifically talking about the uh, flaky pastry. Mm. So for example, the sojo mooncake is also mm. a puff pastry, but it's less, uh, you don't see the layers as much because it's like um, the way it's laminated, there's a smooth surface on the outside, but when you cut into it, uh, you will see the layers. Mm. Yeah, it's kind of like the, um, like the tau sa pia also. Uh, yeah, that's also the it's the it's a similar style of lamination. So there's actually a lot of um ways of like laminating and cutting the pastry, and then you'll get different patterns of lamination. So another one is there's this one called the it's called fan mao, which translates literally to like flipping feathers. Mm. Yeah, so it's a another type of puff pastry, but you cut it on the side, so kind of like when you do croissant, you cut through and then you can see the layers, right? So that that part is like you flip it over and then the lamination is on the outside of the pastry. Actually, I feel that this technique is super versatile. Like you see it throughout a lot of food that we have in Singapore. Like tashu so is one of them that mm. I really like. You know, when you go for dim sum, that's like a must-have. And then there is, um, I'm not sure if you know of this thing, but it's called siu pao. So I think it's a Malaysian thing, but it's basically kind of like a, you know, like a cha siu pao, but with uh, a laminated pastry. And then I realized that, you know, egg tarts also have, has, has that kind of pastry, right? Portuguese egg tart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the Portuguese one is, is where you kind of do the spiral also, and then you press it mm-hmm. into the mold. Whereas the Hong Kong one is like, you can see the puff, okay. the layers along the rim. 
Yeah, I think that's really pretty, like when you see, you know, the, those concentric circles, right, in the pastry. Mm-hmm. But in terms of mouthfeel and texture, what are the differences between Western puff pastry and Chinese puff pastry? So for Chinese puff pastry, there's a, there are many methods of kind of dealing with it. So it's not just baking, but also frying, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then there's also... Uh, I, I don't know if you would consider this puff pastry, but to me, it's a laminated pastry. So like a tong yu ping, the spring onion pancake, right? Yeah, it's also kind of like layering and then, uh, yeah, and then frying it. So I feel like it's a lot more versatile. Yeah, like you, like you mentioned. And it's not just, it's not just butter. Yeah, like French puff pastry is just butter, butter, more butter. Uh, but Chinese puff pastry could be like uh, peanut oil based, it could be lard based, and it could be shortening. So yeah. And each of these oils or fats have their own characteristics, right? Mm. Do they actually change the texture of the pastry or do you think it's interchangeable? It definitely affects the texture, but I, to me it's more of the flavor. And then also, I think for different recipes, so I think the important thing about both kinds of puff pastry, so like the Western one and the Chinese one, is that when you laminate the dough, uh, the two types, so the water dough and the oil dough, or in the, for the Western one, it's the, I can't pronounce this, <laughs> it's French, the detrump, yeah, yeah. like the, the dough and then the butter, yeah, yeah. Um, the texture has to be similar. Yeah, so that's one thing to look out for. So if you have a recipe where the, water dough, or the, if the oil dough is too soft, then you might need to adjust the proportions. Otherwise, it would be very hard to wrap it into the water dough. But I feel that it's way less finicky than the Western kind. Because yeah. when I was making puff pastry in Singapore, it was a nightmare. You had to shuttle <laughs> back and forth between like your counter and the fridge. But this one is like from start to finish. I mean, from start until you, know, you fry in the oil, it takes probably like two, three hours. You know, you don't have to put it in the fridge. You don't have to wait for it to rest. Like, that's what I really, really like about it. Mm. Yeah, there's this technique where you add, like, hot or, like, warm water to the dough for Chinese puff pastries. That really helps the gluten to relax. But I've never seen this being done in for, like, Western pastries. Yeah, yeah. actually, you know, this is interesting because... um. You know, some people say warm water, but some people use boiling water because boiling water yeah. really denatures the, the protein, right? And like mm-hmm. really allows it to roll out really thinly. Uh, some mm-hmm. people also use it in the making of dumpling wrappers, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the same, same idea. Yeah, and you know, to be honest, when I taste um, Chinese puff pastry, I do feel that it's quite different in texture compared to a Western style puff pastry because it's a lot more sandy in the mouth, a little bit drying. Mm. You know what I mean? I feel like every every way of handling it will bring a different, uh, yeah, different Multiple. texture. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't say sandy for all of them. Hmm. Mm. Yeah, because that was one, <laughs> one reason why I didn't like eating tau sapia when I was growing up. Because I thought that, like, the moment you put it in your mouth, right, not only is the skin kind of, um, you know, dry in texture, dry and crumbly more than dry and flaky. And then, like, when mm. you eat, the filling is, like, dry also, you know what I mean? It's like <laughs> Western pastry cream or, like, lemon curd kind of thing. Uh, yeah. 
But I, I also feel like every shop does it differently. So mm. I had a very moist and very very nice Tausa filling before, which kind of makes up for the pastry. So what was the turning point for you? I mean, were, were you just like any other young Singaporean, you know, very interested in Western pastry? Was there a transition point where you were like, oh, you know, I'm going to start learning more about Chinese pastry? Yeah, okay, so I think I have to say first that Chinese pastry isn't actually a thing. So like there isn't a Chinese categorization of like, this is like one word for pastry, like, you know, for Western pastries, it's like pastry is one word that like, you know, if I say I'm going to pastry school and then everyone knows like, oh, I'm learning like this variety of things. Um, but for Chinese pastries, it's like the history is very different. So uh yeah it was more of a like okay i want to look at this now like mooncakes now and then uh it led me to like Tausafia, like oh actually it's similar and then then i go into kueh because kueh is a type of chinese pastry so just found in a like in different regions of china so it was kind of a yeah. messy start and i honestly don't know where i'm going with this um but i know that before i i think it was like uh, earlier this year I joined this uh, TV competition yeah and it was on it was about pastries which is very western but it was on channel 8 which is very Chinese so then I you know kind of searched my soul <laughs> uh, searched my roots I was like oh I want to bring out some of my you know more more of my traditional um, ingredients or like uh, styles of mm. pastry so then I did that but I felt like I was like grasping at nothing. Like it was like very, you know, let me pluck this ingredient, let me put it here, let me pluck another ingredient and put it here. Um, I felt like I didn't really understand my roots in a way. Yeah. So then I was like, um, maybe before I go any further in this on this pastry journey, I should, you know, understand my own pastry heritage better. Hmm. Yeah. You said that you go to pastry school, right? How much hmm. of the curriculum is actually on Eastern pastry? Wow. <laughs> I had two modules out of this one and a half years. Oh, wow. Okay, about about one year. Yeah. And they were they were both taught by this very cute chef. She's like 71, Chef Pang. <laughs> and she's She's super knowledgeable, but um, the syllabus only, uh, yeah, it only covers this much. So, like, for example, we learned how to make traditional, the Cantonese baked mooncake, mm. but we didn't learn how to make the filling. So the filling was, like, from Poon Hua. <laughs> we, just, we just learned how to wrap it, which I felt, like, was such a waste. Yeah. <laughs> so you did a lot of self-learning, la, because, I mean... You only had two modules of this in school. So did you have to do a lot of research back home? I mean, I did ask my chef a lot for, for a lot of help. And she's she's so, super willing to share, which I'm so thankful for. So um, she did give us some tips like, you know, you can make your own golden syrup at home for the Cantonese mooncake dough. Uh, but then like a lot of other things, like I had to go and research like, you know, what makes a golden syrup? Why is it? why is it an invert sugar and how does the inversion process happen and then like that that actually like scientific articles on golden syrup uh <laughs> which i did not expect to find wow. yeah 
Yeah, talking about Golden Sarah, I think this is something that is very um, fascinating for a lot of us because I'm sure a lot of people don't know that um, to make a good mooncake skin, you have to make your own golden syrup. So I was just wondering if this golden syrup is the same as what you get from the supermarket. Oh, it's very different. <laughs> um, at least for the ones we can find in Singapore, I think it's usually that green bottle with the golden cap. Um, and I think the ingredients, if you look at the back, it's just sugar and then some chemical. Yeah, so they use that chemical to kind of invert the sugar. Um, but then when you make it at home, you use like uh, natural acids like lemon and pineapple to help the sugar invert. And then throughout the process, you can also add some spices. Mm. So then your golden syrup will taste very different from the store-bought ones. And it's also like a fermentation process, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you kind of leave it for a few months before you use it. And then it the the flavor develops. It also kind of thickens up. Mm. Yeah. So why is inverted sugar so important in mooncakes? Um, so an invert sugar basically is a sugar that... Uh, so like table sugar is sucrose, right? Sucrose is made up of a fructose and glucose molecule. Mm-hmm. And then inversion basically breaks up, breaks these two molecules. Mm. So it separates them. And then uh, the longer you cook it, so uh, so you start with a lot of water. It's not like a normal syrup that you use when you make a meringue. Mm. So you, you start with a lot of water and then you cook it for a long period of time so that the sugar slowly break down. Mm. Uh, and then once you pass like about 100 and seven degrees Celsius, um, some the fructose kind of caramelizes. So I think that's the caramelization temperature for fructose, mm-hmm. and then uh, that kind of causes the fructose and the glucose to remain separate. So I think about when you have about seventy five percent or more of the sucrose molecules kind of broken down the entire syrup will not recrystallize. So it stays as a liquid at room temperature. Why is that so important when you incorporate that into Mm. a dough? I mean, like, for example, if you're using it right away, you you don't really have to, I mean, you wouldn't have to worry about recrystallization, right? So why is it so important in the texture? So I think there's two parts to it. So one is to help the dough become... uh, but to form that texture it is um, when you're wrapping it around the paste, from around the filling. So like it's it's mm. supposed to form this really soft but malleable dough. Um, yeah, so I think that's one. And then the other one is when you allow the pastry to rest and then the skin is supposed to soften. So I think that this probably won't happen if you use sugar like normal table sugar. Mm-hmm. So um, if I can make a comparison, I think that the Cantonese mooncake dough is, it should be considered a type of short crust pastry. Yeah, because you don't really add water to it. It's just sugar, oil and flour. So um, another mm-hmm. type of short crust pastry would be like what you find in Taiwanese pineapple cake. So for that one, the pastry doesn't soften. Yeah, it never softens, mm. even if you leave it for a long time. But for the Cantonese one, it will soften. And that's kind of the signature of the Cantonese baked mooncake. 
Yeah. So they call this whole process huiyou, right? Mm. Yeah. So when it comes out of the oven, the mooncake's texture is crumbly, and then it's only because mm. of this redistribution of oils that it becomes soft and it'll it'll stay that way for a long time. Yeah. Actually, then it's very similar to macarons. You know, like when you oh, make yeah. the macarons and then you sandwich filling inside. Like it's best to let it sit for a while, right? Mm. You shouldn't eat it. Right? Yeah, so yeah, it's like yeah. when I think about it, there are actually a lot of parallels between East and West, you know, whether it's cooking or baking that I never really considered. Mm. Um, I think another ingredient that we use a lot in the kitchen, in in the Chinese kitchen, is um, some form of alkali, right? Mm. Whether it's ammonium bicarbonate or, um, or alkaline water. Yeah. So can you tell me? How can we use alkalis in the kitchen and why are they so important? Wow, okay. So my understanding of alkali water is kind of limited to the Cantonese mooncake. That's that's the main use for it. Um, so basically for Cantonese mooncake, because of the golden syrup, it's very acidic. So acid slows the browning process. So if you use a very acidic golden syrup, your mooncakes won't come out a nice brown, so like the desirable brown color. So you add mm. some of this alkali water to kind of neutralize it. Um, yeah, and then that's supposed to help your pastry brown nicely. Yeah, I love that. Like, I, I feel <laughs> that it's so true because um, not just in pastry, but for example, when you are caramelizing onions, right? Like some people would add a touch of baking soda for the same reason to help that mm. caramelization or to help, <clears throat> my reaction take place mm. and so I just feel that wow it's so interesting that people from different parts of the world can come to the same conclusion at the same time mm. yeah so can you tell me about why you decided to do this bake sale I mean we all know that mooncake making is so laborious so um, what really spurred you to sell your mooncakes I think um, what I I'm trying to do differently is to bring something that is not so commonly found to my consumers so like uh a lot of people ask me uh are you selling snow skin moon cake and then i'm like no i'm not selling snow skin moon cake because you can just make it at home uh, <laughs> so yeah i i told them that uh for this um at least this round of big sale i am sticking with my concept which is to introduce six different styles of mooncake to you um and then yeah and i won't be taking any special orders like special requests because you know this is my research on the mooncakes and this is how i want to show them to you so it's uh i'm also including like a write-up to tell people more about these different styles of mooncake like there's a savory mooncake which we don't really see in singapore um and then there's like uh yeah just the different types of skins and then different combinations of ingredients and then uh how i use all these different ingredients so yeah mm. can you tell me more about the savory mooncake that you have oh so, um the savory mooncake is i think it's from the hokkien region and then it kind of traveled so there's a similar style in Taiwan and then a similar style in Indonesia as well so like my Indonesian friends told me oh like you know this is this looks like Indonesian mooncake and I was like what is Indonesian mooncake and they said it's they described it as, as like this giant tau sap yeah yeah oh. so I think in Taiwan they call it uh lu dou peng 
which is like a, uh, yeah, when you translate it, it sounds like a tau sapia. But then inside, there is pork, like a pork filling. So it's cooked like a loba kind of style. Wow. Yeah, but you have to like dry it out so that it can be wrapped in the mooncake. Yeah. That totally sounds like my kind of mooncakes, man. <laughs> like, just thinking about it is really amazing. So have you tried making that style of mooncakes? Um, yeah, so for the big... So at, at first, I was like, huh, meat in mooncake? I was like, I'm not going to try that. I'll just try other styles that, you know, are a bit safer. So like yam and then the red bean paste, five nut, the usual. And I was like... Ah, never mind. I have some time. It's Zoom classes anyway. So then I tried it. And I was like, oh, wow, this is actually quite nice. It's very different. <laughs> yeah, but I've never eaten it outside because I've never really seen it around. Mm. But mm. actually, this combination of salty and sweet, you know, in a pastry, I feel that it's very unique to Asian desserts. Because, mm. um, like, for example, just looking at Chinese desserts, right, you have things like orni, which uses, or like yam paste that uses a lot of shallot oil. And mm. to, to the non-Chinese or to people who don't really like eating traditional desserts, they're like, huh? Like, why is there onions or, or shallots? Or even, you know, the uren mooncake, which is the five nut mooncake, right? Yeah. Sometimes they also add jinghua huo tui, which is the jinghua ham, right? Yes, yes. Into the, the mixture. So do you do you feel that this is something that's very unique about um Chinese pastry or mooncakes or sweets in yeah. general? Yeah, because I think like I mentioned earlier, right, there wasn't there isn't really like a category called pastries like in, in the like at least in Chinese. So I feel like a lot of things just evolve the way um, you know, like, you know, there there are no boundaries such as like, you know, uh if you tell I, I don't I can't think of a good example, but like if I tell my my chef I want to put uh chicken in a mousse cake, he'll be like, you know, you get out. <laughs> but um yeah, if I say like I want to put pork in a mooncake, there isn't there there isn't that boundary. Um so like based on what I've read of this book, uh things like noodles and um and dumplings. They are. They were all known as pastries in the past. Mm. So at the very beginning, um, the word "ping," which, like now we used to say "yue ping," right, mm. for mooncake or like "ping" as in like different types of biscuits or pastries. Um, yeah. Last time noodles were known as "su ping," which are like straight biscuits. Mm. Uh, noodles and dumplings were a category of "tang ping," which are like uh soup biscuits. Mm. So it all came from the same family yeah oh that's why it's so like intermingled like the sweet and salty yeah i i think so yeah you know because sometimes when i you know when i'm on facebook i'll see people taking videos of say thai street food then you'll see like an ice cream and then they'll put like spring onion oil on it on the ice cream and i'm like wow i've never ever seen that before but apparently it's quite a common thing um yeah and then it just made me think of how the how the teochews actually use fried onions so what were some you know challenges that you had to overcome when you were trying to learn more about chinese pastries i mean you did say that your chinese is not great so i mean how did you amass all of this information or knowledge i feel like maybe my chinese has improved while i (laughs) tried to study for this um 
yeah so like it's really like looking into the different sources um so for me okay I come from a family of teachers so I've been encouraged to always ask questions so like you know I just keep asking questions and they just keep leading me to different sources Mm. and so like one of them was uh, this book about the history of Chinese food. So, like, it's a part of this, this series called Science and Civilization in China. And it's really, like, very academic, but they really go into the details of, like, different words used to refer to different pastries. Mm. So then when you look at the words, then you realize, oh, these are all different words that, uh, that refer to kue that we know today. Uh, and these are the different words that you know, uh, and it all kind of made sense. Like, um, why, uh, why we say tang duo for sweets? Mm. So, like, uh, when you translate the words, it's like sugar fruit mm. because the original or like the very first sources of sugar came from dried fruits. Mm. So, like things like that, and then you know, slowly, slowly build up my vocabulary. Then I know the right things to search. Mm. And then when I look up different sources, there's actually a lot of very, um, very, very good, very informative videos that are from Chinese YouTubers. Yeah, and then you know, with my slowly improving Chinese, I kind of can understand you know the different terms they use to refer to the pastry, to different parts of the process. Do you feel that there is a certain stereotype that people have, especially young people, um, do you feel that they have a certain stereotype towards Chinese pastries as like, you know, something that only the older folk eat? Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, like, in my generation, very few of my friends eat Chinese pastries. Like, they don't really buy Chinese pastries to eat. Mm-hmm. I think... It's so rare that, um, yeah, this is a bit personal, but uh, the first time I went out with my boyfriend, uh, we went on an uncle kui crawl. And then that's when I knew, like, you know, this, yeah, I can, I can hang out with this guy. Because, <laughs> like, he's, like, into uncle kui. That's so rare. Um, but, yeah, so, like, a lot, of, a lot of the people who ask me if I'm selling snowskin mooncakes are actually around my age. They were like, oh, why, why are you selling, like, these, you know, traditional mooncakes. I don't think this kind of old taste is, you know, what my me or my friends will eat. And I felt a bit sad because I'm like, oh, but um, maybe it's because you haven't tried, you know, these traditional pastries from a lot of different shops because every shop does it differently. Mm. And then there are some that are, you know, maybe not suited for our palate, but there are some that are honestly really, really good. Uh, mm. But maybe they don't, give them a chance yeah. yeah so why do you think this is i mean like i i mean i've definitely had a lot of friends even my my age group or beyond right they are like um you know can you develop a snow skin recipe uh, snow skin mooncake recipe with a chocolate truffle inside with some champagne mm. or what mm. um, <laughs> i'm just thinking whether you know it's because we have grown up with very western flavors um, or is it because, you know, we feel that um, something like a chocolate truffle, which is like partly Western technique, is more atas? Mm. Or, you know, is it just more premium ingredients like chocolate or champagne, things like that? They are quite mm. pricey as compared to something that's more humble, like say um, chicken floss in mooncake. I mean, I saw my aunt <laughs> that, like chicken floss with like, 
mochi or something and then tausa. So I'm I'm not sure why that is the case or is it the the textures and the mouthfeel of the pastry that they can't get used to. What do you think it is? Mm. It's probably a mix of both. So like I have um on my mooncake journey, I learned about the different types of lotus seeds. Mm. And then that kind of made me feel like, you know, do we value Western pastries more because we feel like the ingredient cost is higher? Mm. Um, like, you know, or like maybe because we think that Western techniques are much, much harder to achieve than Chinese techniques. And yeah, I feel like it might be a bit of both. So like for the lotus seeds, right, the one that I want that I use or the one that uh, Chef Pang told me to use is called the Xianglian. So it's actually a lot cheaper than the other, the, the Hokkien, Hokkien produced lotus seeds. Mm. Yeah, so there's two types, right? So one is like the, when you buy it outside, it's like, it looks completely naked. Um, and it looks very white, which is why people spend more money on it. Uh, it's like $7 a kg. And then mm. it's, oh, not, not even a kg. No, it's $7 for like 200 grams or something like that. Um, mm. Whereas the Xianglian is like $3 for 200 grams. Mm. But the cost difference comes from the processing. So like for the Hokkien lotus seed, you need to hand process each of them to remove the skins. But they are not, uh, they are not more fragrant, and they are not as nutritious as the other type of lotus seed. So it's a lot of the, a lot of the cost is transferred to like the pastry makers, and then I, I think that might be why, uh, people charge so cheaply because like, you know, when you, um, like the cost of labor might be a bit lower than you know the cost of ingredients mm. and then you can just push prices down and then people like see like oh the cake is like worth 13 bucks but then this pastry is only worth five bucks i'm gonna buy the cake instead mm. um yeah that sort of subconscious value that we assign to the different pastries yeah and i think it's also unfamiliarity with certain ingredients right i mean i think most younger folk are way more familiar with the different kinds of chocolate versus like mm. the different kinds of lotus seeds you know <laughs> and yeah um you know just i mean looking at some of the ingredients that um chinese people use in sweets you know it's quite foreign to many people because they use a lot of unique indigenous um vegetable products for example candied melon is one and people mm. are like huh like what is that like i i don't think yeah. i've ever eaten that before you know what i mean like there's this fear of the unknown and also dried melon seeds that kind of thing is like mm. it's not big in singapore it, it's like associated with being like a cheap snack right you got nothing mm. to eat then you'll crack some melon <laughs> yeah so or like only during chinese new year yeah exactly yeah. You don't really value it in and of itself it's not like oh you know i'll purposely go to the store to buy melon seeds that mm. yeah so i also feel that maybe it's because our grandparents generation they grew up in poverty right and so the things mm. that they value uh, you know, like all the they really are so resourceful in making the best out of all these cheap ingredients. Whereas now, when we have everything, then we just want the most premium ingredients all the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So maybe that's yeah. a good that value value difference as well. So mm. when choosing to price your mooncake box, 
how did you go about with deciding um, on a price? I mean, I'm sure it was pretty mm. difficult um, getting... Okay, like, actually for mooncakes, it's not that bad because mooncakes is quite a fancy <laughs> item, right? Yeah. yeah. So it was kind of balancing... Uh, yeah, it was kind of like looking at the market price and then deciding that um, one, I'm not going to spend on a fancy box because people don't keep those boxes. It's such a waste. So, um, yeah, and then being clear with myself that what I'm selling is not just a product, but also my research and um, the knowledge. Uh, that's that's what I want to share. So, like, uh, I was like, I think, oh, and then the third, third thing was like, okay, what's a good Chinese number? Like, what's auspicious? <laughs> So like, yeah, I priced it at $68 because, and then my friend was like, why not 70 And I was like, because Chinese people like the number 8. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so it was a bit of everything. So are most of your customers younger or older than, than, than your age group? So actually, uh, okay, so I only have 20 boxes, so that's not a lot of customers because mm-hmm. um, I can't produce that much at home. So out of the 20, I think... They are mostly my age. Um, many of them are my friends, and they kind of got interested when they saw my like Insta stories of like, uh, today I'm making lotus seed paste, and then like showing them how tedious the whole process is, and then yeah, I think they kind of got a bit more interested. What are your plans for paste stories? Honestly. Okay, I think this is because I'm an Aquarius. I rarely have plans. I'm just like, okay, let's see what happens next. Okay, but then the idea of pay stories will still stay. So like, um, I, I found that through pastry school, I think that my strength is in studying. <laughs> I, more than anything, uh, quite, I kind of regret to say this because I always thought like, you know, I'm different from my family. My family is full of teachers, but I'm going to be different. But actually, I'm not so different. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I hope to look more into like, you know, do more deep dives into different types of pastries. And then not just, um, yeah, so for at least the next few years, I think I want to focus on Chinese pastries because it's like, now I realize how much I don't know. Because previously it was like, oh, Chinese pastry is just Chinese pastry. Yeah. But now it's like, now I know what I don't know. And now I know what I need to learn. So I'm planning to set the next few years to deep dive into different types of Chinese pastries. And then beyond that, uh, I don't know. I'll see where life takes me. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I'm very excited to see what you'll do because I feel that this is an area that... Not, me- not many people have a lot of understanding about, including myself. Mm. I feel like, you know, like last year I made my first mooncakes and I was like, oh my God, what is this? What is homemade syrup? Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. That wraps up another episode of the Singapore Noodles podcast. You have been listening to Yomin, who is the founder of Pay Stories. This content is only made possible by the members who fund Singapore Noodles. If you'd like to sign up to be part of this community that gets access to weekly recipes and video tutorials, as well as monthly virtual classes, then visit the website at sgpnoodles.com. Once again, thank you for listening to the podcast and I'll catch you next week.